1: Hello and welcome to episode 842 with Carol Kaufman. Carol has got some excellent perspective, questions, insights on how you can thrive in stressful or high stakes situations. So you'll learn one, the super question to ask yourself dozens of times a day, two, how to avoid being hijacked by stress, and three, how to find the best approach in any situation. So if you want to check out the show notes with the transcript or the links to items that we mentioned here, please visit us over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP842. And while there, check out some of our goodies like every episode tagged by the topic and competency covered, the full text searchable transcripts and a whole lot more over at awesomeatyourjob.com. Now, here's a little bit about Carol. Carol Kaufman is internationally known as a leader in the field of coaching. Carol works extensively with global CEOs and their teams, also serving as an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School, visiting professor at Henley Business School at the University of Reading, UK, and a senior leadership advisor at Egon Zender. Marshall Goldsmith named her the number one leadership coach, and Thinkers 50 ranked her among the world's top eight coaches. Big thanks to Carol for sharing her wisdom with us, and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. now here's carol carol welcome to how to be awesome at your job thank you i'm glad to be here well i'm super excited to talk about your latest real-time leadership find your winning moves when the stakes are high but first i need to hear about your first job with the violent horse what is the scoop here
2: oh okay well, actually, my very first job was a pooper scooper okay yeah with Because we had an illegal kennel in our home when I was growing up. So imagine having 30 dogs and um, not understanding why 101 Dalmatians is unusual. Mm-hmm. So, yes, my job was to, to, one, do pooper scooper, but also was to let the dogs out in the correct order. So we'd have two whites, two browns, an apricot and chocolate. And then you do it again and again and again. And everyone just thought they were the same jobs, the same dogs. Uh. <laughs> so that was the beginning of my my life of crime. The violent horse thing happened by accident where there was just this beautiful white horse of every girl's dreams. And I walked in because I was taking horseback riding lessons and they were, there was a lesson going on and I knew I wasn't supposed to be in there. So I, I just sort of walked in and there was a, a window and, and a bucket in front of it. So I had to turn my back to the horse to look outside to make sure my lesson wasn't happening. And what I didn't know was that according to Auntie Roberts, who's the original horse whisperer, when you have a naughty horse or a violent one, you turn your back on it by 45 degrees, which is exactly what I had done. And when I did that, the horse came over and started befriending me. And then that was the beginning of learning about, first of all, nonverbal behavior and how to relate to animals that everyone is scared of. But if you treat them right, they befriend you rather than attack you, which is what he did to everybody else.
1: Hmm. Oh, that's beautiful to pick up from an early age. Good stuff.
2: Yeah, it was wonderful. Yeah.
1: Well, talking about your book here, Real-Time Leadership, is there a particularly surprising or counterintuitive discovery you made along the way here that really struck you?
2: Well, that's interesting. Probably the one thing, I'm not so sure it was counterintuitive, but what's really striking is how a split-second intervention can make a big difference. And, you know, that's almost cliche, but it's really powerful when you see it. So I can, I can talk about that a, a little bit. Marshall Goldsmith has gone crazy with one of my questions. But it is really amazing. If you stop and make a space, It's even, even very quickly, it can be really powerful what happens as a result of that.
1: Okay. Well, now I just have to know. Marshall said, it's crazy with one of your questions. What was the question and how, in what way did he go crazy?
2: Oh, I'm not going to tell you. Sorry. Oh, yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> so the question was, it was New Year's one year. And you know how we all have the, what I'm going to do, like my New Year's resolution is always, mm-hmm. what am I going to do? And this year I'm like, really, I'm going to do the same resolution and it's going to last six weeks and then be gone again. So the question came to me, instead of what do I want to do, it was, who do I want to be Okay. right now? So I'd love for you and, and people listening to try it and ask yourself that question 20 to 80 times like today or tomorrow. Okay. Like the waiter is slow and you're really hungry. Okay. Who do you want to be? Maybe you're, someone has given you a project that they're working on and it's really subpar and you really knew they could have done better. Okay that. Who do you want to be? Mm -hmm. Or you're giving someone your report you've written. Okay. Who do you want to be? So that is this very split second course correction question. And why Marshall loved it is he felt, I'm not entirely sure why, but he felt what he says is I've read 500 books on Buddhism and this is the best description of mindfulness I've ever
1: heard. Okay. There you go grab that quote.
2: (laughs) So that is really powerful. That's probably one of the most powerful things that, that I think comes from the book.
1: All right. That's good. That's good. Well, I I visited Marshall's home. It was cool to see all the Buddhism stuff. And then, so yeah, maybe that'll be inscribed somewhere in there over time. All right. Well, let's hear about the the book real-time leadership. What's sort of the big idea or main thesis here?
2: Okay. Building off of that, the book, I love the quote, by Viktor Frankl and man's search for meaning, which is between every stimulus and response, there is a space and in that space lies our freedom. Okay. So that's good making a space, but then like, what do you do with that space? So the entire book is if you can stop and create a space instead of having your default reaction or your automatic reaction, and you make a world of choice there, what we then do for the whole book, which is as Marshall says, it's dense in a good way. We literally go through what are four sets of things you can do when you've made space that are going to help you towards optimal performance, but also towards being a better human being. So it's make that space for choice and then have an idea of like what to do in that space.
1: Okay. So could you share with us an inspiring story of someone who did just that, maybe in a particular high stakes, high risk situation or habitually and and saw really cool results from that?
2: Okay. I think the first example that comes to my mind now, this, this was someone who wanted to be a CEO, but it, it applies any difficult interview that you've had. So he was in front of you know, doing the first two days, the first day of the interview, he was really convinced that what it was he needed to do was wow them. Okay. So he didn't make a space to consider if that was true or not. So he was giving them lots and lots and lots and lots of information. And I think we all can do that. We're applying for a job and we think that they just want to know how much we know. So we spit it all out, but he saw that he was sort of losing the attention of people and then they were getting restless. And so he just did more of it. And finally it's crashing and he just sort of Tries to maintain good posture and dignity and and walks out. And, like, what is he going to do the next day? What did he get wrong? That's when we talk about we have this acronym MOVE, and the M stands for being mindfully alert and mindfully alert to what are the external demands you need to meet. In this case, he wanted the job, et cetera. What are the internal challenges you have so that you're able to meet that demand? And then, how do you need to relate to people? What happened was he he left. Then he called uh, David and me, but also the head of the nomgov committee, the nominating governance committee, called and said, we think he's out. We have somebody else. So then we talked to him and really said, well, what is it that you're really trying to do? And that's a question we don't ask ourselves enough. Like, what are we actually trying to do? What's your reflex? And can you make space and think about it? Like, hold on. What do you really need to accomplish? And in his case, it was to be making a connection with the board so they would feel safe putting him into this position and to also take their perspective. So his perspective was, let me throw a bunch of things at you. Their perspective is how many things can I absorb? So one of the things about it is how can you know what you need to do? How can you know who you need to be? And in this case, he had a lot of emotion regulation and was able to change course the next day. And he was able to also transcend his ego so he could see, oh, I did that. And that's on me, not on them. And then he could interact with them differently. So that's one of the core concepts of the book and of real-time leadership. And it also works at home, by the way.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, let's hear that story as well.
2: Okay. I love this story. My son, Michael, who's now a mechanical engineer, when he was 11, I walk into the dining room and there's this like unholy mess on the dining room table. I walk in and he says, okay, I'm done with my homework. Can I watch TV now? Okay. So now remember the three dimensions of leadership. What do we need to do? Who do we need to be? How do we need to relate? And we are leaders at home. We are leaders with our peers. We're leaders in lots of ways. So the first question is, what do we need to do? And the reflex is get the homework done. You know, so you go over and like you know, first it's an unholy mess and there's scribble marks everywhere. And I was working on the book. I thought, wait a minute, what is my actual goal here? It is my goal to just get this homework done, or is my goal to help him learn how to be disciplined, or is my goal to have him love learning, or is my goal having him watch his parent be chill? and talk with him under stress so that he can Mm -hmm. be more like that. Like, what is your goal? And we just assume it's like, get the homework done, the reflex. So we're saying, stop, make a space. Okay. So there's that then, you know, well, who do I want to be in that moment? It's at the end of the day, have I done enough investing in my own emotion regulation so that I'm able to stop as opposed to I'm tired, I'm cranky, just, I don't want this. So that's my internal development. And then, okay, what's the best way to relate to Michael at this moment? Is it to get really involved and help him get the homework done? Is it to give him space? Is it to be nurturant? Or is it to just pause and not do anything? And that's actually the second part of the model about your options. But I actually, the hardest one is to do nothing, particularly when you're triggered and annoyed. So I like stopped and did nothing for a moment. And when you do that, It mimics the, in the shower or when you go running and an idea hits, but if you can just pause, see what comes to you. And what popped into my head was a question. So I just said, so Michael, I want you to ask yourself a question. And then depending on the answer, you can go watch TV. I want you to just look at this and just ask yourself, am I proud of my work? And if you're proud of your work, you can go watch TV. And I left the room and he maybe spent two or three extra minutes taking a look at it and decided that he was proud enough and, and he maybe did something, but it had an impact on him in terms of me in that role, giving him space, trusting him, and then giving him an opportunity to be self motivated.
1: Mm-hmm. And so what happened at the end?
2: <laughs> well, he stayed there about two or three minutes and did a little bit. Then he went in to watch TV but I I have to say it did something very good for our relationship, and even today, now that he's a grown up, he'll often call me for coaching. And very often he'll ask me something, and I'll say, "Okay, as your mother, the patent is yours. Throw everybody else under the bus."
1: Mm-hmm.
2: As a coach, let's think through what's your real goal here now that you have got this patent, and who you should share it with. So I think that's probably the big takeaway. Is it? It really helped our relationship. And he is a very much self-motivated learner.
1: Okay. Well, so let's hear these these four steps of the move framework, M-O-V-E. Can you walk us through each of them?
2: I can. Okay. So M, I'll name them and then go through, and then you can sort of decide which one that, that our, our listeners would be most interested in. So M is to be mindfully large. O is for an, to be an options generator. And there's an article on that in uh, Harvard business review this month. Then V is to validate your vantage point and E is to engage and effect change. So we did a little on M already. So M is being mindfully alert, mindful in terms of not prejudging things, alert, like an athlete, Mm -hmm. very agile, aware of what's going on and being able to respond. And a big part of that being, the three dimensions of leadership that I talked about. What do I need to do? Who do I need to be? How do I need to relate? Now, the options generator is when I work with people. And again, this can be top of the house. This could be me. This could be you're writing a report. You could be a novelist. You could be an engineer, anything. For any challenge, I want you to have four options available to you. And the options really stem from evolutionary theory and our four reflexes, which are fight, flight, freeze, and befriend. And we all kind of have a natural one. Lots of us are naturally, we sort of lean in and engage. Others of us kind of like look back and take the overview. Others go to nurturing and others go to just sort of reflecting. And we talk about these as the four stances. So what is the stance that you can take? And we translate that into, in in a situation, do you lean in and really engage? You can engage with enthusiasm. You can engage with an edge. You can engage like a rugby player or a ballerina. But do you lean in? Or are you able to also make the choice to lean back? Look at the overview, get on the balcony, think about the data, rational think it through, and then proceed with that. Then the third one is leaning with, and that is caring. And the idea of someone has done something to help you, you want to help them, or on a bigger scale, it's your culture. But that third way is being nurturant. Then the fourth way is to not lean at all. And that is when something is thrown at you, do you have the capacity to tolerate the silence? Do you have the capacity to not be triggered? and just sort of stay in your space. So that's the options generator. V, validate your vantage point. 75% of business failures are due to overconfidence, so you're not validating your vantage point. And we have a number of ways to figure out, is my vantage point accurate? If I was gonna see something incorrectly, what is it that I'm most likely to, to do? How does my personality impact what I see? Bunches of stuff, and then unconscious bias as well. So mindfully alert, options generator, validate your vantage point, And then how can you engage and affect change? And for engage, it's really like, first of all, how do you just really connect to the people that you are leading? And it doesn't mean you're their leader. You can be their colleague, but you're trying to get something done. How do you send the right signals, hear back what people are reflecting to you and then adjust. So that's like, and each one of those are all ways to make space. Like you've got that space, what do you do with it? And you can take yourself through the M-O-V-E to get a sense of what's the best way to proceed right now.
1: Hmm. Well, that's, that's really cool. And I'd love it if you could share with us uh, a few examples that illustrate that very clearly. Oh, here we are, being mindfully alert and then generating options and validating the vantage point and engaging and affecting change.
2: Sure. I'm going to hop into one of my examples of the lean in and lean back. And when I came up with the idea, I was coaching this guy that I call Max. And Max, his very dear friend had become his boss. And this relationship had just gone to hell in a handbasket. She was micromanaging him. He had a whole fund that was going to be used for one thing. And she actually took it away. Hmm. And it was so bad that at the end of the day, he would say, I would only make appointments with her at the end of the day. So I could immediately go home and have a martini. Okay. So lean in. So he had like, you know, I need to manage this, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like right there with him. And he then says, you know, after she micromanages and this and that, and then she starts confiding in me and telling me secrets. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, like she's a sociopath. Like this is so manipulative and just as about, I'm about to go with that energy. I'm like, stop, make a space. So this really, you can use this just for yourself as a coach or as well as in a, a leadership position. So I stopped and, and thought, okay, let's lean back. So I then said, so Max, let's let's pause for a minute. What might be going on in the overview? Like, what's the bigger picture here? And then you could see how the leadership team over her was really, really coming down on her, huge pressure, and that in fact she was passing that along because she was under such intensity. But it helped him to like be able to chill a little bit. Then I thought of the next one, which was in this case, don't lean. And I was actually afraid to ask him this because I thought he would get mad at me, which was, I said, so listen, Max, you always, you get your way in the end and you even got all your funds back. Why is your behavior even bothering you? And that was just like, that was sort of a a curveball question for him. And a good one for us to ask when we're activated to really go, wait, why is this bothering me? Does this really need to bother me? Do I need to be triggered right now? that takes you back to who do I want to be right now, right? What am I really trying to accomplish? So all of these, you can see they're intertwined, but then, okay. So it's like, well, that, that's interesting. And again, it helped to make a little more space. Then the last one with him was to to think about leaning with. And so then I said, so listen, she used to be like one of your good friends and you're describing all this pressure that she's under. What if you're, your goal. Okay. Remember the external goal. What if your goal in the next time you met with her, was just for her to feel better at the end of the meeting. And that was just a real shocker for him. And he remembered, Oh, right. We used to be friends and she's under so much pressure. So what you could see was if you link this together now, so those were the four stances, but you can see how it's connected to what do I need to do? Who do I Mm -hmm. need to be? And how do I need to relate? But also we were also secretly doing vantage point. Because it's like, wait a minute, you have this perspective. Your point of view is that she's doing this on purpose and that she's something that rhymes with witch and that this is, again, volitional on her part and it's about power. And his anger and his triggering had really clouded his thinking. And we all fill in the dots with our hopes and our fears. And he was then able to, to see more clearly And then in terms of being able to engage and affect change, in this case, it was just, okay, I just want to engage with her as a human being. And it got much better for a while.
1: All right. Well, thank you. Well, now I'd love it if you could maybe share a a top do and don't for each of the four steps of the framework. Like, hey, when it comes to being mindfully alert, you probably want to do this and you probably don't want to do that.
2: Okay. So here it is. Let's say I'm going to have a difficult conversation. What do I want to do? What do I not want to do? So if I think about being mindfully alert and I'm about to have a difficult conversation with someone, first question is, what do I really want to accomplish? And then what do I not want to accomplish? So in in this particular situation, someone had cost me a massive amount of stress and, and finances. And I was aware that when I was thinking about the conversation, Part of me just wanted to pardon the expression. I just wanted to put her nose in the PP. I mean, look what you did to me. Mm -hmm. And it's like, no, like what really needs to be done now? And what, what really is the ultimate goal? Not what is it that's going to make me feel better in this moment? So do make a space to think about what you really want to do in, in that case for a difficult conversation, go back to the homework example So there. And then who do I want to be? Well, what you want to be able to do is remember your strengths. You don't necessarily want to like dive into all the ways you're inadequate. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, okay. I've got a lot of flaws, but here's the things that I do need to do right. Then in terms of how do I need to relate? What you want to do is what I call the platinum rule. And you do not want to do the golden rule. So the golden rule it's a sort of fairly low bar in some ways, which is okay. So Pete, we're in a situation, and it's like I should treat you the way that I want to be treated. But what if what it works for you is not at all what works for me? Let's say I'm a super extrovert and you're an introvert, and you're having a hard time with something. Well, as an extrovert, I might think, "Oh, Pete, you need a pep talk, and this and that, and this and that." And inside, you're going, "Oh, dear Lord, just leave me alone. I need to think." So you don't do the golden rule, give to others, treat others as you would want to be treated. You do the platinum rule, which is treat others as they would want to be treated. So that if we just go through the M, those are some do's and some don'ts.
1: Mm -hmm. All right. And then with the OVE?
2: Okay. So with the O, what you want to do is, remembering you're being mindfully alert, what you want to do is choose. So when it comes to leaning in, like even that tough conversation, or you're leading a merger and acquisition, right? Like, do I lean in and get tough? Do I lean back and get the data? So the point is, be aware of your default. That's the do. The don't is automatically go with your default because it's the easiest thing to do. So be aware of what the four stances are and then challenge yourself. So you may be someone, for example, that when you do something, you like to go big and you like to go fast and you want to get it done. Well, like lean in, it's like, well, wait a minute, what would it look like if I went slower and I was more careful? So the point for me isn't that you do the the one that, say, I might think is better, It's that you could really visualize, here's four different ways. I could go in strong, do something big. I could go in more gentle and do a series of smaller things. I could think about people first and not the outcome. I could be able to be more reflective. So I want someone to know what the four paths would be like and able to make space to choose. So the do is know the range of how you could be. And the don't is go with your gut automatically. Mm-hmm. Although sometimes going with your gut is the right thing to do, but it should be choice and not automatic
1: yeah, and then when it comes to validating, are, are there any favorite approaches that could give you a boatload of clear validation or invalidation of of your hypothesis for what 's up here
2: yeah, so the don't is don't assume you're right mm-hmm. also don't assume you're wrong <laughs> don't assume start out with this is what I think, and then. Allow yourself a moment in space to say, do I actually agree with myself? Am I seeing clearly? Do I have rose-colored glasses on, charcoal-colored glasses on? Am I nearsighted or farsighted? So, for example, nearsighted, if you're in a subject matter expert role, you can see things up near really, really well, but you may not have the hundred-mile view that a CEO does. But then let's say you're a CEO and you're farsighted, but there's stuff going on right under your face. You don't know. You can't see up close very well. So it's knowing what your strength is and how to balance it. And then the big one for validate your vantage point is again, no, do I tend to doubt myself too much or do I tend to be overconfident? And then are what are my biases? And how can I begin to know what I don't know that I don't know? Mm-hmm. The answer is ask people a lot and get over yourself. So I would say that was the and the big thing is we do connect the dots with our hopes and fears. So one of the guys who helped with with the book, my my co-author David Noble, was was friends with him. was a retired four star general, and I didn't even know there weren't a lot of four star generals. He's like Carol, there's only been one five star general, mm-hmm. which I didn't know, like Eisenhower. There's like two of four star generals, really nice guy, very like small and, and very, very pleasant. But he's like, you know, he would be like in charge of the Iraq theater. And he's like, you want to fight the war you have, not the war you want. And so bring that down to us is we want to be reality based with what's really going on, not with our wishful thinking and not hijacked by our fears so that's sort of the V.
1: All right. And then with the engaging?
2: With that, it's what you want to be able to do is send clear signals. And a big mistake we make personally, one of my favorite mistakes, because I make it a lot, is I believe I have been achingly clear in what it is I'm asking, or, and others aren't. So I think I'm being very clear on my intent, and I now know that my automatic belief what, when I engage is I've got to be very clear on communicating my intent. So one example that we see a lot with leaders is they tend to think people can read their minds. Like I'm having a meeting. So you and I, and a couple of people were having a meeting and we're brainstorming. And then I'm just stunned when I find out that you went out and did all those things. Cause Hey, we were just brainstorming, uh-huh. but I wasn't clear about that signal. I didn't say, Hey, we're just brainstorming now for Pete's sakes pun intended. Uh, For Pete's sakes, don't like go out and do anything. This is a brainstorm Mm -hmm. and how to signposts so people aren't like running around. But it's amazing how unclear you can be when you think you're being clear.
1: Yeah. Well, that's a lot of good stuff, Carol. Tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things.
2: What I'm really hoping for is that this material doesn't just help you at work. But it helps you at home and it helps you step into all that you can be, Mm -hmm. that it really can help you become an extraordinary person. And for you not to put blocks in front of yourself, as I say, if anybody's going to get in your way, please don't let it be you.
1: Mm -hmm. All right. Well, now, could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring?
2: Quote that I have heard. Well, of course, there's the, the stimulus and response one that I really love.
1: And could you share a favorite study or experiment or bit of research?
2: The one researcher that I love is a man named Richard Boyatzis, a neuropsychologist at Case Western Reserve. And you should get him on your show sometime. What he's done is really looked at what part of our brain is activated when we are in an interaction. And basically it's every interaction is neurological mm-hmm. that you're activating the threat or the reward system of the other person and that's the sympathetic is the threat and the parasympathetic is the reward system so in any interaction that's going on and if you want to have a positive influence on someone you will activate the parasympathetic nervous system so even if they've messed up you'll say so So listen, we really wanted to do this and this and this, and we kind of missed it, but like, let's figure this out together. What, what still went right, even though dot, dot, dot. So how do you really create this very active, psychologically safe and caring environment? And then when you do that, you can then challenge people with them still saying safe. So it's it's a combination of Richard Boyatzis and Amy Edmondson at Harvard Business School. And she's the one who's done all the psychological safety work. And those two sets of research, I think, really guide me. They guide me a lot.
1: All right. And a favorite book?
2: Favorite book? Uh, I've got a gazillion favorite books. For some reason, the one that I really loved recently was I read the book Circe. I can't even remember who wrote it now. It's just a fabulous, fabulous rendering of the gods in a way that you'd never be able to think on your own. I'm also reading, of course, there's Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow with uh, Danny Kahneman. And that one's great. And then the ones by Marty Seligman, those are probably the ones that got me on this path to begin with. And I love historical novels. I'm reading historical novels all the time.
1: Okay. And a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome
2: I have a bunch of mantras. This one that really helps me a lot is I'm not in control of my destiny, but I am in control of my probabilities. So what is it that I can do to increase the likelihood that I'm going to be able to achieve what I want? Not, am I going to achieve what I want? Because that's linear and true success is much more uncertain and non-linear So that's something that I keep in mind a lot.
1: All right. And a favorite habit?
2: A favorite habit. Probably the favorite habit is what I was talking about earlier of asking myself, who do I want to be right now?
1: And I'm curious, are there any other super questions that you go to a lot?
2: I'll tell you one that I really, really like, which is this. Say you're thinking of doing something. If you knew you couldn't fail, what would you want to do?
1: Mm Mm-hmm. All right.
2: And one of the things we ask in the book a lot is something we call the 10 of 10 question, which is, if I'm going to do something, if I was a 10 out of 10, what would it look like? And then I'd ask myself, okay, on that scale, what am I now? Let's say I'm a seven. And then the important question is to ask, what am I doing right that I'm not a six or 6.5? And then what could I do over the next eight weeks to get from a seven to a 7.5?
1: Mm-hmm. And is there a favorite quote of yours, something you share that really resonates with folks they quote frequently?
2: Well, I like some of my own quotes. I have a bunch of things called Carolisms. So one of them is if anyone's gonna get in your way, please don't let it be you. The, I'm not in charge of my destiny, but I am in charge of my probabilities. And people often ask me to give talks on confidence. And Mm -hmm. I say, that's fine, except I don't believe in it. So the other one is confidence is irrelevant. What matters is your purpose and what you're trying to do, because confidence is simply a pleasant, subjective, emotional experience, and it is not a requirement to do anything at all.
1: Okay. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them?
2: If you remember my name, Carol Kaufman, two F's, one N, you can just Google me, Carol Kaufman, carolkaufman.com. And if you'd like to buy the book, you'd like to buy the book. Amazon hardback, just Google real-time leadership and it'll get you to Amazon.
1: All right. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs?
2: Make sure that whatever you're doing, you really want to be doing it from the inside out, not from the outside in.
1: All right. Carol, this has been a treat. I wish you many great winning moves.
2: (laughs) Thank you.
1: I love that question so much who do I want to be right now? It just cuts to the core of things in terms of I'm stewing, I'm angry, I'm irritated, I'm frustrated, I'm having a little pity party in terms of, okay, who do I want to be right now? It just really elevates the whole internal dialogue toward the future, toward something constructive and highlighting that, oh yeah, that's a choice. I dig it. I've been asking myself that question a lot. I hope you likewise dig this and other insights from carol again the show notes the transcript and the links to items that we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com ep842 hope to catch you next time and peace
0: thanks for listening to get the most out of the show we recommend two key things first check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com